Hello, it's Thursday the 1st of April. My name's John Dennis. Today, Gordon Brown has denied that immigration is out of control. He's first of all insisted that the government does have immigration under control and that indeed in the last three or four years the amount of net inward migration in Britain has substantially reduced, contrary to a popular myth. With Labour rather than the Tories bringing up the subject of immigration, the editor of The Spectator, Fraser Nelson, says it's because David Cameron doesn't want to upset voters in marginal seats. British elections become a battle not for the hearts and minds of the country, but simply for the preferences of this very narrowly defined group of people. Therefore, all political parties, not just the Tories, confine their arguments to what they think is going to win around these guys. We look at reports that an Iranian nuclear scientist who vanished last year has defected to the United States. ABC News is reporting that uh, his disappearance was part of a far-reaching CIA defection operation aimed at nuclear scientists, known as uh, the Brain Drain Campaign. Britain's answer to the Eiffel Tower, Anish Kapoor's massive artwork that'll grace London's skyline during the 2012 Olympics. It's 115 metres tall, taller than Big Ben, twice as tall as Nelson's column. And it'll be one of two things. It'll be an absolute triumph or it'll be an unmitigated disaster. And a fantastically detailed copy of a Roman mosaic. A ten-year obsession for two brothers is about to go under the hammer. We still come here from time to time on our own put the lights on and wander around and we see things on the mosaic now which we've forgotten. It really is, although I say it myself, quite a spectacular piece of work. First our top story. In a speech in London's East End, Gordon Brown has insisted that immigration is not out of control. There's only one conclusion from all the published data that's available in this. Over this period, net inward migration has fallen. Now, this doesn't mean immigration isn't an issue. It is. That's why I'm talking about it today. But we should not allow people to scaremonger with unsubstantiated claims about rising net inward migration today. With immigration a possible battleground in the coming election campaign, the Prime Minister said mainstream politicians should unite against those who oppose a diverse Britain. The Guardian's Home Affairs editor, Alan Travis, says this was an attempt by Brown to dispel popular misconceptions about immigration. Well, it's quite a low-key, cautious speech about immigration. He, what he said is really is that uh, he's first of all insisted that the government does have immigration under control and that indeed in the last three or four years the amount of net inward migration in Britain has substantially reduced, contrary to uh, popular myth, and that he intends to substantially reduce it further if Labour remains in office. Do his figures stack up? I think so, yes. I mean, you could argue that since 1997, net inward migration to Britain is still as higher now than it was when Labour came to power in 1997. But that would be to ignore the fact that uh, half of Eastern Europe joined the European Union in about 2003-2004, and that huge wave of uh, immigration actually uh, contributed to help fuel the boom before the recession. We remember a speech shortly after Gordon Brown became Prime Minister in which he talked about British jobs for British workers, but the tone of yesterday's speech was quite different, wasn't it? That's right. That sounds quite declamatory and raucous in his early days about uh, 
that kind of semi sort of slightly nationalistic appeal. Now it's far more cautious. I think he all his sort of advisors are telling him the polling data out there and the focus groups show that immigration is bubbling very, very strongly under the surface of the radar of British, British politics and that uh, in some parts of the country, any discussion about politics in the election will quickly turn to a discussion about immigration. Well, it's quite interesting that he has chosen to speak about immigration at this point in time uh, when he's expected to announce in a general election any day now. And, uh, you know, immigration traditionally um, a, a, a subject area that the Conservatives might claim as their territory. Well, interestingly, those uh, uh, Labour strategists I speak to and also some Tory strategists as well think that Cameron may steer clear of immigration in this campaign, that uh, it's the one issue which if he comes out and makes strong, strong, strong stand on, then it will be seen as reminiscent of Michael Howard's uh, nasty party campaign and that he'll try and uh, prove his more caring, compassionate conservatism by not going that way. But others argue that the uh, implications of Andy Coulson and the right of the party will overwhelm him. But uh, I think there's one interesting point about the speech uh, yesterday in Spitalfields by Brown is there was some speculation that this could be another area where uh, Brown was going to steal the Tories' policy and in which case uh, the Tories advocate a quota or a cap on the annual limit on the number of migrants coming to Britain and and uh, Brown uh, made absolutely clear that he wasn't going to do that in this particular case. And they're sort of one of the few issues on which there is clear blue water. And indeed, I think we may see Labour quite aggressively attack the Tory idea of a cap as being bad for the British economy, with perhaps companies being lined up to uh, come out during the campaign saying how it would be uh, bad for business for them. Alan Travis. Well, many Conservatives are jittery at the recent narrowing of the polls, and some may be rueful that it's Labour going on the attack over immigration rather than the Tories. In this week's Media Talk podcast, the editor of The Spectator, Fraser Nelson, tells The Guardian's Matt Wells that it's because David Cameron doesn't want floating voters in marginal seats to see the Tories as the nasty party. The Conservatives have been careful to not to see to come across as being too Tory. There's, one of the bad things about our electoral system is that elect power is won not by getting a mandate from the country as a whole, but by winning over a handful of swing voters in swing seats. There's perhaps a quarter of a million off them out of an electorate of 45 million. Um, so British elections become a battle not for the hearts and minds of the country, but simply for the preferences of this very narrowly defined group of people. Therefore, all political parties, not just the Tories, confine their arguments to what they think is going to win around these guys. And they're pretty... It's all basically a race not to scare the horses on the side of both the political parties right now, which I do think inhibits some of the more fiery rhetoric I would like to hear from David Cameron and George Osborne. You were down at the uh, TV debate, the Channel 4 TV debate, uh, this week. What did you make of that, and how do you think that will inform the rest of the campaign? I thought the debate was rather dull because everybody was playing defensively. It struck me watching it how it could well be that the objective for every single politician going in there is to walk away having not made a huge big clangor. Um, because we all know if you say a very clever word or a phrase, it might get repeated once or twice in the news. If you make a huge mistake, it will haunt you for the rest of the campaign. So I hope that the leaders' debates between um, David Cameron and Gordon Brown and Nick Clegg will be a little more spunky. You know, we want to have some there's, zest. There's the 70 rules or whatever, they're, they're going to be even less spunky, aren't they? It's very depressing. I imagine that the amount of cups of teas being made 20 minutes into that debate will surge throughout the nation if it is as boring as that, which is a shame because in our Prime Minister's question time, we have 
as a country a great method to see two guys going at it against each other. If the political debates are pale imitations of that, I really do think voters are going to feel shortchanged. But to those who want to be informed rather than just see it as a piece of political panto, might um, might be grateful for it. I mean, a lot of people, I've heard anyway, said that they were quietly impressed by George Osborne because he wasn't the complete fool he'd been described as being in the media. But you could say that he killed the calumnies, he managed to combat his negatives. It's not a bad result. I can't say he walked away there from a triumph, but I do think it was a net positive for him. It would have won more voters around for him, and that is the objective of the whole thing. Fraser Nelson talking to Matt Wells, and you can listen to Media Talk at guardian.co.uk slash media. Also on the Guardian's website today. On Guardian Sport today, we'll have all the news and comment that's fit to print from last night's Champions League quarterfinal first leg between Arsenal and Barcelona at the Emirates. We'll bring you updates on the website on the state of Wayne Rooney's injured ankle. And on our chart-topping podcast, Football Weekly, James Richardson will be in the chair as he and his guests discuss midweek Champions League action and look forward to the weekend's Premier League action featuring that all-important clash between Manchester United and Chelsea. Anish Kapoor has created what will be Britain's biggest public artwork. This curly-whirly tower will be built in London's Olympic Park and it'll allow spectacular views of London. The plans were unveiled by the capital's mayor, Boris Johnson. The Guardian's arts correspondent, Mark Brown, has seen the designs. Basically, it's called the ArcelorMittal Orbit and it's 115 metres tall and it's a tower but it kind of looks like a helter-skelter, I suppose looks nothing like the Eiffel Tower, that's for sure. Uh, and the idea is that people will be able to walk... Up uh, this kind of looping It's up a looping... Yeah. Uh, I don't know if there's going to be stairs, but it's certainly it'll be quite steep in parts. So the more unfit of us might want to get the lift. <laughs> and uh, there'll be spectacular views of London from Oh, there there. will be. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, as I say, it's 115 metres tall. That's just short of the London Eye... Uh, but taller than Big Ben, twice as tall as Nelson's column. So, um, you know, a, a massive folly, really. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, it'll be, it'll be one of two things. It'll be an absolute triumph, and Boris Johnson, who's basically, it's his idea, will emerge a triumphant figure for having come up with this concept in the first place. Or it'll be an unmitigated disaster, which will be forgotten about and nobody will go to. So it can only be one of two things. <laughs> well, now, when it was built, the Eiffel Tower was only meant to be temporary. Will this uh, orbit be a permanent fixture on London's skyline? That's the idea. I mean, Boris Johnson thinks our kids will be taking us up in our dotage to the top of the orbit. So the idea is to have a kind of legacy for the Olympic Park. This is going to be a place where people are going to come for years, for generations. And Boris's idea is that they will come to climb up the orbit. Who's going to pay for this? Uh, It's going to cost £19.1 million, uh, the majority of which is coming from um, Lakshmi Mittal, the steel billionaire, you know, the Europe's richest man, he's often called. So he's putting up £16 million, then £3 million is coming from the Greater London Authority, but Boris reckons that the GLA will get a lot of its money back through the restaurant, which is going to be on the viewing platform. How did Boris get Lakshmi Mittal involved? 
Well, according to Boris, he was at Davos, at the World Economic Forum. He knew the tower was going to be built. He knew it was going to need steel. By complete chance, he bumped into Mittal in the cloakroom at a hotel in Davos. Like you do. Like you do. Collared him, spent 40 seconds saying, listen, I've got this idea, it's going to be X, Y and Z, it's going to be fantastic, in typical Boris style. Uh, 40, minutes, 40 seconds later, Mittal said, yes, I'll give you the steel. Mark Brown. I'm John Dennis. You're listening to Guardian Daily. An Iranian nuclear physicist has been persuaded to defect by the CIA. That's according to a report in the US. Shahram Amari went missing last summer during a visit to Saudi Arabia while on a pilgrimage to Mecca. But he's now said to be living in the US, as our diplomatic editor Julian Borger explains. What we know is that he disappeared while on the Hajj uh, in Mecca uh, late May, early June last year. Uh, A few months later, the Iranian government came out blaming the US for seizing him with uh, Saudi help. And we haven't heard all that much since that was solid, except a lot of speculation about who had him and what kind of uh, help he'd given to the West in terms of uh, insight into the Iranian nuclear program. Until now. Well, ABC News is reporting that uh, his disappearance was part of a far-reaching CIA defection operation aimed at nuclear scientists, known uh, as uh, Brain Drain Campaign, uh, aimed at nuclear scientists, uh, luring them away, um, There has been another incident like this, 2007, when a Revolutionary Guard uh, general thought to have some connections with the nuclear program disappeared from Istanbul. Under similar circumstances, uh, Ali Reza Askari, uh, we're not sure where he ended up. We haven't heard uh, much on him since. But he too, as speculation runs, uh, has helped the West uh, and Israel get a clearer picture on Iran's nuclear program and, according to some reports, helped identify the secret enrichment facility in Qom that was uh, unmasked last September. And they've also, uh, the intelligence agents have also been behind efforts uh, to um, get Iran to buy duff parts for their nuclear program. Yeah, this was previously reported, and a a senior member of the Bush administration I was talking to not long ago claimed this as one of the unsung achievements of the Bush administration, the fact that uh, the enrichment program in Natanz wasn't going as well as the Iranians had uh, hoped, that the cascades of these uh, centrifuges that they're running at Natanz seem to be crashing and there seemed to be a drop in the number uh, according to the IAEA, that is, they're actively enriching uranium. He was claiming credit for that, for being part of a, or being behind a uh, an operation to feed duff parts into the supply, the black market supply network, which Iran is using to build its uh, nuclear program. It's all very John Le Carre, isn't it? Yeah, very much so. And as far as we can tell, the intelligence campaign uh, is really the only. Western policy strand that seems to be working at the moment. And we know it's working because they were able to identify COM. And soon after the identification of this enrichment plant in COM, the Iranians said, yes, 
and admitted it wasn't an enrichment plant. So we know they got that right. And this seems to be the biggest setback to the Iranian program that has been in recent years. So although sanctions don't seem to have had any effect in slowing the Iranians down, the much vaunted threat of uh, Israeli or US military action doesn't seem to have diverted them. Uh, it does seem as though the, the West and or Israel are, are making advances on the, the intelligence front. Julian Borgia. Two brothers spent 10 years painstakingly recreating a huge mosaic found at a Roman villa in Gloucestershire. The Orpheus pavement measures 205 square metres. Builders Bob and John Woodward used more than 1.6 million pieces of hand-cut clay tiles in their labour of love. And it was bought by a local businessman and displayed at a Gloucestershire abbey. But now it's about to be auctioned. Bob Woodward described the mosaic to The Guardian's Stephen Morris. It's uh, spectacular in as much as it's a huge mosaic. It's the largest Roman mosaic found north of the Alps. And when you realise how many Roman mosaics have been discovered in the UK, of course, it's a colossal amount. It's then rather unique because it's an Orpheus mosaic. And we can see here today the lovely figure of Orpheus there with the lyre on his left knee. And it was Orpheus that um, it was claimed that could create magical music and even draw the rocks from the hillsides. So we see Orpheus there charming the fish in the centre of the mosaic. That's in a sunken area that would have contained water for the fish. Outside of the octagon, the first border, uh, a circular border, is made up of a variety of, of birds. Outside of that, we've got the laurel wreath, which is the victor's wreath uh, for Orpheus, and then a lovely single file of wild beasts. And we've got the gorgeous lion there with its flowing mane, beautiful colours of the tigress, the stag, the leopard, the bear, the only mythical animal on the, on the mosaic, the griffin, then the tiger, the elephant, the small horse, a boar, and the lioness. Would you take me back to when you first saw the origin of this? Um, what did you think when you first saw, saw well, that? Absolute uh, elation at seeing a, a stone carpet that was still there, you know, 1600 years after it was made. It's still telling the story of Orpheus. I could see um, something of the, of the real craftsmanship of the original Rome, uh, Roman mosaicists. And, However good my brother and I might have done this, of course, our job was much easier making it from clay as opposed to the original Roman craftsman who made the floor from natural stone, which is just mind-boggling. At the same time, paradoxically, I was quite annoyed because there was so much missing of the original mosaic and I just felt how absolutely wonderful it would be to do the research into the missing areas. Uh, and to restore the, the whole floor so that we could see it uh, as an entity. And it took you 10 years? It took 10 years to do. It was, uh, there were many challenges. Of course, uh, Brother and I had never made a mosaic before. There were challenges which we never expected, and there were times when we wondered if you know, we were ever going to complete. Both John and I left school at 14. Um, we were not academics, and for me to have to spend three years researching into the missing areas, it was 
really an amazing uh, experience and one that both of us now uh, are so thrilled we, we didn't miss out on really and, and we still come here from time to time on our own put the lights on and wander around and we see things on the mosaic now which we'd forgotten and little tiny bits that we remember we had particular problems with and it really is, although I say it myself, quite a spectacular piece of work. Bob Woodward talking to Stephen Morris. Now, it's Easter weekend, of course, coming up, and Good Friday and Easter Monday, there'll be no Guardian Daily, so we'll return on Tuesday. Today's edition of Guardian Daily was produced by Chris Wade. My name's John Dennis. Thanks for listening.